Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from Quick Book Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? Well, you girls been swimming. On holiday, I realised how many... This shouldn't all be about calories, but just allow me to say this. I realised on holiday that an hour's swimming burns the same calories as an hour's running, which... You know, if I was given the choice, do I want to pound the pavements or be in the water? I would choose the water. I was astounded by it. That's the joy of having a waterproof watch that you can actually get all the data. Anyway, so after the holiday, I came back and I said, right, you girls swimming, we're going to do this. Anyway, so I go to the pool and it's called Adult Lane. So I think, well, that sounds fine. And they divided the pool into three different lanes. There's the slow and there's, it's actually labelled slow, medium and fast. And I looked at the fast and thought, well, I can go at quite a pace when I want to, when someone's holding an ice cream on the other side of the pool. So I thought, do I go in the fast lane? And there was a chap in there looking very profesh with his old butterfly malarkey and everything. I thought, no, I won't do that. I'll stay in the middle lane and then I'll get my confidence up and then I'll move into the fast lane and try not to get in the way of butterfly stroke man. So I get in the in the middle lane, medium speed lane. And there's a few people there in that lane. And you're looking at them thinking, well, I really could put a bit more effort in. Off I go. (laughs) I was so slow. (laughs) I was causing a traffic jam behind me. And everyone was being very British and polite. I could say, I'm so sorry. Oh, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. You go at your own speed. I had to remove myself and put myself in the slow lane. And there I stayed for the duration there were there were people who I had thought were going so slowly in the slow lane that were overtaking me. And in the end, in each lane, you're supposed to do like these circles. But in the end, I agreed with the other people in the slow lane that I would just do complete lengths and, and they would do lengths so that I didn't get in their way. I was just mortified. I enjoyed it. I think I need to find some waterproof headphones so I can listen to books as I'm going along. But anyway, yes, I had high hopes and that came to nothing. But never mind. Now, oh, there's one more thing I need to mention as well before I get on to the books today. And that is that we're starting a bit of a book club, a bit of a book group. It's not going to, it's not anything whiz bang huge. And if it doesn't work out, it's no bother. We're going to start it 
first week of October. I'm aiming to do the, the first book in October. My life at this point that I'm recording this is a little bit busy. And as you have heard last week, there's a new podcast coming out, but I'm still recording the other podcast. So we've got all about the archers coming out, but dum de dum is still happening as the point that I'm recording this. We've got a child going off to university. There's a lot of stuff happening. So I'm hoping that by the beginning of October, I will be able to relax and we can do this book club. If it turns out that that is not happening and we start it 1st of November, please accept my apologies. But it's happening soon. If you want to be involved, we'd love you to be involved. Just join the QuickBook Reviews podcast Facebook group and there'll be information there. The book we're doing, because a few people were asking about it, is one of Ellie Griffiths. But it's the first in the Brighton series called The Zigzag Girl. Now, I have read this book, but I've read it some years ago. And I've got to be honest, I can't remember what happened. And I want to get back into it because Ellie's bringing out the new book in the series soon. So I would like to get into that series and explore it more. And there was chat on the Facebook group about this series and how people would like to read it. So I just thought, why not? So we'll do something along the lines of reading so many pages or chapters a week and then we can go and discuss it feel free to join us. We'd love to have you there and the Facebook group. Anyway, enough wittering. What books are we looking at today? We are looking at The Trap by Catherine Ryan Howard. And Catherine is very kindly coming on the podcast to talk to us about that book. Then we've got, listen to the title of this, The Wheel is Spinning, but the Hamster is Dead. Uh, It's a book by Adam Sharp. And Adam is kindly coming on to talk to us about that book. Also, Adam has written a book. Now listen to the title of this one, The Correct Order of Biscuits. Now, I hadn't heard about this book, but a friend, listener, Jen, mentioned to me that such a book existed and I immediately got myself a copy. Then I heard Adam was getting a new book out and thought, we need to talk to Adam about this. So then we've got Adam on. And I'm also going to review for you Start a Villain by John Scalzi. The Treatment by Sarah Moorhead and graphic novel series Spy Family. I am currently reading book five, so I think it's about time I talk to you about Spy Family as well. I should say all of these books I've loved. There are no duds this week, uh, but we need to just get started. So let's dive into The Trap by Catherine Ryan Howard. Let's read the blurb. Stranded on a dark road in the middle of the night, a young woman accepts a lift from a passing stranger. It's the nightmare scenario that every girl is warned about and she knows the dangers all too well. But what other choice does she have? As they drive, she alternates between fear and relief, one moment thinking he's just a good man doing a good thing, the next convinced he's a monster. But when he delivers her safely to her destination, she realises her fears were unfounded and her heart sinks because a monster is what she's looking for. She'll try again tomorrow night, but will the man who took her sister take the bait? Brilliant. What a superb book. Let's talk to Catherine now. Well, it is my huge, huge pleasure today to talk to Catherine Ryan Howard, whose latest fabulous book is called The Trap. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really looking forward to talking to you because I've admired so many of your books. You're one of my autobi authors, so thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. (laughs) 
Well, let's start with basics. Can you give us a bit of a summary of this great story? So essentially, The Trap is about Lucy, whose sister Nikki disappeared about a year before the novel begins. And the official investigation doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Other women have disappeared too. And Lucy is in a place where the torment of not knowing what happened to her sister has kind of overtaken the grief. So she's been pushed into this place of irrationality and desperation. And so she has decided to take matters into her own hands and she has started playing bait. She's trying to bait the man who took her sister so he can take her too. And in some way, I don't think she has any concrete plans after that if she finds him, but in some way that that's the only hope she feels she has to find her sister and find out what happened to her. I have to ask, what inspired you to write this story? What dreams do you have at night, Catherine? <laughs> I have great dreams, usually about Jurassic Park, which is one of my obsessions. I've been chased by many a T-Rex at night. But the idea for this book, as so often is the case, it kind of came from two different places and two things kind of joined up in my brain. So the first is a real case here in Ireland in the 90s. We call it, well, the media called it the Vanishing Triangle, even though it was not a triangle. But over the course of uh, five years, eight women disappeared uh, the first uh, 30 years ago this year. And amazingly and shockingly and infuriatingly, no trace of any of those women have ever been found and no one has been charged in connection with any of their disappearances. And I was a teenager in the 90s, so just when I started paying attention to the news, the news was that Irish women were just literally vanishing off the face of the earth. And I think that had, you know, a, a sort of effect on me, like it loomed large in my adolescence. At the same time, I'm getting into crime fiction and true crime. So I think it all kind of mixed together. And I was always going to write in some form about Irish women disappearing in this way. And then also there's a novella called The Vanishing by Tim Crabbe, which was made into two movies. The Hollywood version has a happy ending, but the novel and the original Dutch movie does not have a happy ending. And it's about a man whose wife disappears or partner disappears and... Again, the obsession with not knowing completely overtakes the loss. Like he doesn't even love her anymore, really. Like the love is gone, but this torment remains. And he there's one paragraph in it that has always stayed with me where he says, you know, if someone offered me two choices, she's dead and I get every detail or she's alive and well and I can never know, I would choose she's dead because I just have to know. And I think those two things came together and swirled around and out of it came the idea for the trap. And let's talk a bit more about Lucy. We don't want any spoilers, but she is one of the main characters. Can you just give listeners a bit more of a, a feel for her? Yeah, this book is impossible to talk about without, you know, giving away the farm. But Lucy is the older sister and she's a bit bossy and she's, you know, a bit sort of... I don't think she'd call herself selfish, but like she wants what she wants. And she didn't actually get on that well with Nikki, the sister who has disappeared. And that was something that was really interesting to me because, you know, you never see when people go missing or or they're the victims of violent crime or they're murdered or whatever. No one comes out and says, you know, my brother was really bloody annoying 
and you know he's a terrible person but you know I, w- I want to find him I want to bring his killer to justice so I wanted to have that kind of interesting conflict between I love her because she's my sister but I didn't necessarily like her when she was around and we weren't that close particularly so I think this is all leading feeding into Lucy's you know mental state of I'm feeling guilty over that I'm angry that no one has found her. I can't get back to my normal life because I have all these unanswered questions. And so she does take matters into her own hands, but she's not making rational decisions. And I find it really funny when readers react to books where characters make irrational decisions as if to say, you know, I'm sick. I'm sick of characters making irrational decisions. That's all drama. That is what drama is. That's what fiction is. If we wrote stories about people who made good decisions, they'd be very short stories. Yes, that's a good point. Now, I think it's a a good time when we ask you to read us a little bit from the beginning of the book. Yeah, I'm going to just read the very first paragraph. So there's no chance of of spoilers whatsoever. (laughs) She'd been out, out, and town had been busy. Stumbled out of the club to discover that there wasn't a taxi to be had. Spent an hour trying to flag one down with one hand while trying to hail one via a nap with the other. Until resigned, she'd pushed her way onto a packed night bus headed not far enough in sort of the right direction. Her plan was to call someone at its terminus, apologise for waking them and ask them to come get her. But by the time she got there, to a tiny country village that was sleepy by day and empty by night, her phone had died. She'd been the last passenger and the bus had driven off before she could think to ask the driver if she could perhaps borrow his phone. It was four in the morning and beginning to drizzle, so she'd started walking. Because really, what other choice did she have? Wow, a great opening. I mean, as I said earlier, I enjoy all your books. Do you enjoy writing them all equally or are some more traumatic to write than others? I think every book is traumatic to write. (laughs) (laughs) Writing in general is very traumatic. I certainly enjoyed writing some more than others. And The Liar's Girl, which is my second novel, is probably the worst writing experience I have ever had. Because I made the fatal mistake of, you know, you write your first novel and no one knows you're doing it. You don't have an agent, you don't have a publisher, no one is, is asking you for it. And... As soon as you finish that book, you should start writing the second book. I didn't. I kind of, you know, was enjoying the getting the agent and then I was enjoying getting the book deal and then I was enjoying having a book out and totally just forgetting that, you know, there's another book that needs to be written. (laughs) What happens is like you forget how you did it. You completely forget how you wrote that first book and now you have an editor and a deadline and expectations and all this. So... It was really, really difficult. I had second novel syndrome and then it turned out to get nominated for an Edgar. So now I worry if a book isn't really difficult to write, there's something (laughs) wrong. And the book I probably enjoyed writing the most was The Nothing Man, because that is my personal favourite. I could have gone on writing that book for years. I just really, really enjoyed it. And then all the other ones are kind of falling somewhere in between those two experiences. But it's never like you say, like when writers, you know, say, oh, it was like I was just transcribing it, like it flowed out of me. I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) That is not my experience. 
<laughs> so had you always wanted to be a writer with your school report? You know, Catherine will always be a writer. My school reports were Catherine is great at English and doesn't bother her bum at anything else. That was kind of <laughs> do better in every other subject except English. As I'm talking to you, I'm sitting at my desk and I'm looking at a framed picture. It's on the wall, so I, I can't uh, show it to you, but listeners, I'll describe it for you anyway. So I'm about eight years old. I'm in a long nightdress. I have a pigtail on either side of my head. It's Christmas morning and I'm on the floor typing on the typewriter, the petite typewriter that I asked Santa to bring me while Barbie's magic fan sits off, ignored to one side. So I always wanted to be a writer ever since I figured out that books didn't just magically appear, that someone actually wrote them. And when I found out that that could be your job, like that was it for me. That's all I wanted to do. So I was always running home to work on the English essay and not do any other homework and, you know, writing and reading all the books. And then when I was older, going to the workshops and stalking authors and all this kind of thing. So it's always, always what I want to do. I have my dream job, basically. But does that bring with it a pressure in itself that because that's your dream job and because your books are so well reviewed that each time you've got to hit the, Absolutely. the target? And like often I joke and I'm only half joking that like I'd love to run away to Paris and like work as a waitress or something because it's very like it sounds sort of, you know, champagne problems. But when this thing that you care about more than anything else in the world is tied into your career and making a living and you know the success of everything is like all riding on something that you actually have very little control over so it is difficult to manage that but at the same time you know, there's nothing else I would rather be doing. And all I want to do is is write books and get to keep writing books. And so once things are sort of ticking along at a level where I can do another book, that's that's what my focus is. And at the end of the day, all you can control about this is the book itself. And so you always have to come back to that feeling of being at the desk, which I will be doing after I talk to you with a fresh cup of coffee, in my PJs, I do have my sweatpants on as per usual and, you know, getting to getting to make stuff up and you just have to come back and focus on that and try and keep out all the noise of the actual, you know, publishing world. So which is the most enjoyable word to write, the first word or the last word? Oh, the two most beautiful words in the English language, the end. <laughs> Do you type that in still? I type it in even though it doesn't appear in the actual books because like I'm actually getting giddy now just thinking about typing the end. There is no better feeling and I usually have a little glass of something and then I go watch like 10 hours of Netflix or whatever, sleep for 24 hours because um, I'm usually like I'm a terrible procrastinator so I'm always down to the wire and pulling on lighters and, and all sorts of behaviour that I really should stop but haven't found a way to so far. So absolutely, God, yeah, the end all the time. I wish books still had the end included in. I don't know if that's just because I'm an old fogey and that's how it used to be. Well, I, but I can't say I have seen it. I mean, I, I'm trying to think. I don't know if I've seen it at all in the last years, but I type it anyway, even though then I will delete it before I send it off to my publisher just to make a point to myself, I think. 
So if you could go back to when you were writing your first book and just whisper something in your ear, what would you whisper to yourself? Oh, that is a really good question. I mean, I think I would whisper, you need to start writing the other book. <laughs> yeah. But uh, besides that, you know, when I used to go to workshops and in writers being interviewed and all this kind of thing, oftentimes writers would say this to me uh, or to the audience and I would want to punch them in the face because it would, you know, I just was like, what are you talking about? But now I understand that it's true. And it's that there's no experience like writing that first book. And when you're writing it, you are, you think you're in a bad place because you don't have an agent and you don't have a publisher and you don't know if it's any good and you don't know if you'll ever finish it and you don't know if anyone will read it. And you're all focused on that. It's I desperately need to write this and make all that happen. But actually, you will never probably in your life have another experience of such freedom and playfulness and no pressure and no one waiting for it and no one comparing it to anything else you've written and no deadlines and no editors. You will never probably have that again, even if you you know, come out of contract and you're trying to get another contract, there would be that pressure of comparing it to previous books or or however. So I would whisper in my ear, enjoy this. Because I was so panicked about all that noisy stuff that I had, a, I mean, I, I loved writing that book. Distress Signals is my first book. And I think a lot of readers have said, especially friends of mine who've read it have said, you know, I feel you having fun as you're writing this book and I did but I just wish I had kind of enjoyed it more rather than I desperately hope this gets read or this gets published or whatever yeah but that's often the way with life it's you know the grass is always green and you spend your time wishing time away and that you reached a level and then that level brings its own yeah challenges rarely in the present tense you know we're always like looking back and thinking, oh, I was I was happy then or I had a great time at that or whatever. And I think that's, you know, that's just normal life. But if I had a time machine, I would I would go back and say that. Well, we come to the final question, Catherine, which is the most crucial one on this podcast. What biscuit was powering the writing of the trap? What was your biscuit of choice? So I actually don't really eat biscuits. Oh, dear. Pressing and end now. The reason is, if there was a packet within... A mile radius. I mean, they'd be gone. I I don't understand people who put things in their house and have one. What are you talking about? So, and the other reason is I drink a lot of coffee. And coffee is a bit of an appetite suppressant, I think. So when you're drinking coffee, you don't really have that appetite, I feel. Catherine, I don't have that problem. (laughs) Or survive on coffee while you're writing and then go stuff your face with carbs. That's like my kind of... (laughs) My kind of thing. I don't really, you know, now I'm questioning everything about my own life that I don't really, I don't really have things with my coffee. It's weird, actually. If if I had to choose a biscuit, it would obviously be like a chocolate chip cookie style thing. Potentially those ones that you buy in the bakery and Marks and Spencers that are about the oh, size yeah. of the dinner plate. I, I will say I love a pastry. So there has been mornings where I would have a cinnamon bun. I have never met a cinnamon bun I did not like. So, once as close as it comes to biscuits. <laughs> we'll allow that. Well, I'm off 
to just try and drink so much coffee does act as a as a hunger suppression because I haven't reached that. It's getting very temporary because then when you stop drinking the coffee, which I do about two o'clock where I won't sleep, you're starving. (laughs) Just like hoover up everything in the kitchen that you find. (laughs) Why we can't have biscuits. (laughs) That's true. You can't just have one, as you say. But what you can have is the trap and everyone needs to be reading it because it's brilliant. Catherine, Ryan, Howard, thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me on. Coming up, one more author interview and more book reviews. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And let's go to The Wheel is Spinning, But the Hamster is Dead by Adam Sharp. Let's read you the blurb on this one. Join Adam Sharp as he journeys around the world in idioms, proverbs and general nonsense. Learn unusual insults from France. You are a potato with the face of a guinea pig. How to hurry someone up in the US. You're going as slow as molasses in January. And what they call a shark in Vietnam fat fish. Full of fascinating, ridiculous and hilarious translations from around the world, Adam has rounded up the very best of what every corner of the globe has to offer. So yes, you've guessed it. This is non-fiction, but just a brilliant book. A great book to have as a gift as well, I think, for people and for Christmas coming up. Anyway, let's talk to Adam now. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Adam Sharp, whose latest truly magnificent book is called The Wheel is Spinning But the Hamster is Dead. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Philip. We have to talk about this book. Let's start with you giving us a bit of a summary of it. Okay, so it's a collection of idioms and proverbs 
from all around the world, translated into English, all presented in list form, because I have a lifelong obsession with lists <laughs> and lots of footnotes in there along the ways. But yeah, it's basically a collection of how we'd say well-known idioms and, and expressions in all different languages. Fantastic. Well, just to give us an example, can you give us an idea of one of the pages that we might read in this book? Sure, yes. Okay. Before I start, I should explain that all idioms from different languages are translated into English. I'm not going to read the phrases in their original language. <laughs> uh, oh, dear, Adam. I should also forewarn you, because this offends many people, that all my this count down numerically, as all this should, in my opinion. But lots of people insist it should count up. Anyway, okay, I'll get the show on the road with a top five list of ways to say, let's get the show on the road in different languages, which is one of the very early lists in the book. Number five, from Bulgarian, let's pick up our hammers. Number four, let's saddle the chickens, German. Number three, let's go bedbugs, the bed's on fire, finish. Number two, on with the butter, Icelandic. And number one, from Dutch, forward with the goat. And I should just say another Dutch version of Let's Get the Show on the Road translates to go with that banana. Also excellent, I think. Mm -hmm. It was a very tough call which one to go with when I was putting the book together. Got forward with the goat one now in the end. How much fun did you have putting these lists together? So much fun. I mean, oh, like I mentioned before, I've always been obsessed with lists anyway, so there's not really much more fun I can have than, than doing a list of, of anything. But this obsession with, with learning different expressions and, and sort of words and different languages around, around the world has been going on for three or four years now. And yeah, just, just endlessly enjoy doing it. So I have a lot of fun doing it in the first stage of it, which is sort of the research where I'm looking finding all these different expressions for different languages and just collecting them all and then start whipping it down into whatever works best, whether it's a top five or a top seven or a top, top eight or whatnot. But then the second part of it is, and I know a lot of people, for good reason, hate Twitter, but it's been great for me. The second part of it is I post the lists on Twitter. I'm very fortunate because I have this sort of network of thousands or possibly tens of thousands of other translators and native speakers of languages all around the world that follow me on Twitter and, and always contribute with these brilliant phrases of their, their own that are often regional from their specific part of whatever country, or it might be an older phrase that their grandparents taught them. So they'll contribute these to the list that I post on Twitter in, in the comments. And then, so this ne next part of the um, affecting the lists, I guess, is adding some of these sort of comments into the list themselves, which, which go into the final, final book version. So just the whole process is joyous, really. I mean, I, I love doing research by myself and can get caught up in books for, for, for hours at a time, but then there's this nice, I mean, obviously not real world, but online social aspects where there's sort of community of, of sort of other, other people contribute these lists. So it makes it really nicely collaborative. So yeah, it's just a, wonderful thing to do. And how hard is it putting the lists in order? How do you agonise over that? So much agonising. 
<laughs> so yeah, the the order is uh, yeah is sort of a big thing. And actually, the, the previous book was called the Correct Order of Biscuits, mm-hmm. uh, which is sort of slightly different different book. That wasn't all entirely about international news. It's a, it's a miscellany of things, really. But yes, the order part obviously is 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 very important to me, and so. Often that alone can yeah can can take hours or, or sort of days, and it really depends list to list. So sort of sometimes there'll be a couple of expressions that play off each other quite nicely, and, and they'll need need to be together. I try to make sure that the number one in the list has a little bit of a twist that it might be sort of slightly different or or, or unexpected to to the other entries. I usually start and try and make sure the very first entry that you read in the list is a strong one to to kick off well which is classic playlist rules really <laughs> so yeah something that i agonize over for hours and hours at a time but wouldn't have it any other way <laughs> well can you give us an idea of another page could you read us another of, list of of course yeah and yeah this is actually one where 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 two of the Two of the entries do play off each other a little bit. Number five, number four, and the list. So this is probably actually quite a good one to to read at this point. So this one is a list of a top six list of versions of like a fish out of water from different languages. So number six from Icelandic, like an elf outside a hill. Number five, like a dog at a game of cones, Danish. Number four, like a Dane on skis. Norwegian. Number three, like a cockroach at a chicken dance, Venezuelan Spanish. Number two, like a frog in a bowl of punch, Croatian. And number one, from Spanish, like an octopus in a garage. Just a note on the on the Norwegian phrase, uh, like a Dane on skis. There's plenty more evidence of national rivalries that come out in idioms like that. For example, another old Norwegian phrase for someone sneaking out of the party without saying goodbye is making a Swede oneself. And Norwegians are on the other end of trash talk from the Finns who have a euphemism for when someone is vomiting that translates to they're speaking Norwegian. And we have this in English too, of course, with our phrase for someone sneaking out of the party without saying goodbye being taking French leave, which by the way is called leaving English style in France. And if something makes no sense, we obviously might say it's double Dutch or it's all Greek to me. And the equivalent phrase in Polish, by the way, translates to, is this a Czech movie? Or conversely, a Czech person might say, this is a Spanish village to me. So yeah, just want to make that point that the linguistic blame game is played in most countries. Wow, it's alive and well. I mean, that had never occurred to me. That puts a whole nother... Slant on it. Let's talk about lists because you say you love lists. When did you write your first list? Oh God, what was my first list? So as long as I can remember, really, I've, I've been doing lists. I can't really remember time I wasn't doing them. When I was five or six, I was had a strange. I'm making myself sound very strange in general, but I had a strange obsession <laughs> with um, collecting snails, and so. I imagine I would have done a few sort of lists of potential names for, for snails. I can't remember any of them now, unfortunately. It was more back then, everything had to be ranked for me. So yeah, it'd, it'd be lists of favorite songs or, or, or 
children's TV shows or I wouldn't do this anymore, but I think I probably used to rank people as well. So probably my, probably my favorite people in my class at school or, or favorite teachers and whatnot. I don't have many of the old lists, unfortunately, or I go back to them and see. But yeah, I'd imagine something like that would have been one of my very first lists. So is writing lists your superpower? <laughs> um, I don't know if it's my I don't know if it's my superpower, and it's a nice thing to to go into because because before this has actually been a strange sort of sideline the, the doing the books of lists the last last few years because for for about twelve years before that my focus had been on rock writing novels and, and and memoirs and and things like that and the the nice thing about doing this the the books of lists or the collection of, of lists or, or whatnot is there's not really many or perhaps any other people doing it. So just by default, really, <laughs> I think near the top of the list list making game, I guess. But yeah, I don't know if I'd say it was my superpower. For, for, the, for the last book, John Mitchinson, who who set up Unbound Publishers and also quite interesting, the, the series of books that went to the TV show, gave a quote for that book where he referred to me as the poet laureate of lists which was possibly the nicest thing anyone's ever said, said about me. So I have to put that on my gravestone even. <laughs> I mean, with this book, the wheel is spinning, but the hamster is dead. First of all, will there be T-shirts with that on? Because I do think that is a glorious thing that I want on a T-shirt. I, I really think that, I really think there should be, if for no other, other reason, but the illustrator for the cover just did the loveliest well i say loveliest it's a it's a dead hamster that's probably <laughs> not the right word lovely <laughs> but it's a great illustration of, of, of a little dead hamster in the center of the book which yeah i think could make a brilliant image for a t-shirt so i'll i'll, I'll get on to that i'll send you the first one <laughs> <laughs> please do and i will wear it with pride <laughs> what's the most controversial list do you think in this book what list are you perhaps a bit nervous about people reading well, funnily enough, the probably the list of phrases that the title comes from. So, so the wheel is spinning, but the hamster is dead is a is a Swedish idiom that's equivalent to a few sandwiches short of a picnic in English, which is a, a great phrase. And and and, the, and there's lots of lots of great phrases around the world as well. As a just off the top of my head, there's a Finnish expression that translates to they don't have all the movements in the valley and there's a sort of really evocative french phrase not very well known one it's from from french slang that translates to they're not the most oxygenated trout in the river so really <laughs> colorful and, and, and evocative sort of, sort of phrases but but i guess at the same time because of the subject matter as sort of a few sandwiches short of a sort of a picnic would often sort of be used yourself in a, in a self-deprecating way but I think because it's that kind of expression that can be directed at people in quite a mean way so certainly when I was posting that one on Twitter I was a little bit nervous about that that that, that it might be used in a way I wouldn't hope that it'd be, be used but that, that didn't seem to be seem to be the case it must have like I said it was mostly people using it to describe themselves or sort of politicians which which is sort of fine so yeah, I'd, I'd probably say that list, strangely, was the one that I was most worried about, which obviously had to go in there because it has the has the title of the book in it. We come to the biscuit section of the podcast, which is very important. But, you know, this is a game changer because your previous book, as you've mentioned, The Correct Order of Biscuits, has a list of 
the correct order of biscuits, which, first of all, I was very intrigued to read about. But secondly, I had questions. So can we just talk about this list of biscuits? Do you happen to have that biscuit list to hand? I don't know if I do, but it's slightly changed. Talking about controversy, one of the ways that it sort of changed, not because of the controversy, just because I got um, sick of them, was in that list, at number five, I think I had Jaffa Cakes. Yes, you did. Which which I've since, I wouldn't say completely gone off. I, I, I still like them, but they've just dropped out of my top five. I'd say Jammy Dodgers have, have replaced them. And Chocolate Leading has, has moved up. I think that was number two or number three. This that was, was number three. Was it? Yes. Right? So that was, this was three years ago that that book was sort of, sort of published. In the lockdowns, especially, Chocolatinas almost single-handedly got me through. So they're number one now. Specifically, actually, the Aldi version of them, the dark chocolate ones. Absolutely amazing, they're number one. So, yeah, so it's changed. Talking about controversy, that original list, when I posted on, on Twitter, there was there was a huge hoo-haw about. And, yeah, very nearly got, got me cancelled because of the, the, the endless Japa cakes, are they a biscuit or, or a cake debate? And obviously, I could come out very strongly on the side of them being, being a biscuit, but there was lots of people that were very unhappy about that. And that was sort of partly because this this big conversation arose out of that sort of list. That was part of why it became the the title of the, of the book in the end, it seemed. Well, um, personally, I'm fine with a Jaffa cake being a biscuit, but I do take issue with chocolate bourbons and Oreos being on the top five. That, oh, that's what did it really? for me, I'm afraid, yeah. No, it has to have chocolate in to have a good chance of being in the top five for me. Really, I should maybe I shouldn't say this as, as I've set myself up as some kind of biscuit connoisseur, but really chocolate is my num- number one love. Uh, biscuits are quite quite far behind that, I'd say. So, so really biscuits in a way are just a, a vehicle for more chocolate for me when it comes down to it. Oh, I'm all, for I'm all for that. But a, a chocolate hobnob. Is that your number one? Certainly of the authors I interview, the chocolate hobnob would be top of the list. Right. Yeah, I think for, for me as well, I, I put on a, a host a monthly literary night here in, in Newcastle and the authors that, that I have do, doing the readings, I always ask them their favourite biscuit as well, funnily enough. And yeah, chocolate hobnobs comes out really high. I don't know. I guess that's just mm. a, a general population thing maybe. Well, it's just wonderful to talk to you and hear more about the wheel is spinning, but the hamster is dead. Adam Sharp, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Great stuff. Well, let's go on to Start a Villain by John Scalzi. Now, when I got a copy of this book, I thought it looked a bit like a YA adventure book. And so I wasn't sure exactly what to expect, but it is definitely an adult book. This is a great book. This is a firm favourite for me. Let me read you the blurb of this one. Inheriting your mysterious uncle's supervillain business is more complicated than you might imagine. Sure, there are things you'd expect. The secret volcano lairs, the minions, the plot to take over the world, the international networks of rivals who want you dead. Much harder to get used to are the sentient, language-using, computer-savvy cats and the fact that, in the overall organisation, their management. I'm going to read you the first few sentences. Chapter one. I learned about the death of my uncle Jake in a deeply unexpected way, which was from the CNBC Squawk Box morning show. I had Squawk Box on from force of habit. 
When I was a business reporter for the Chicago Tribune, I would turn it on in the mornings in rotation with Bloomberg and Fox Business while I and my wife Janine got ourselves ready for our respective days. These days I had less need of it. Substitute teachers do not usually need to be kept up on the state of the Asian markets in order to babysit a bunch of students in a seventh grade English class. But old habits, it turns out, actually do die hard. I loved this book. It was so different from anything I've read in a long time. It's got it's written with such a sense of humour. I love the situations. It doesn't mess around with sort of filling scenes. I just think it's great. It's about 250 pages, 260 pages. It's got adventure. It's got hijinks, humour. Loved it. Want more of this. Absolutely brilliant. Very, very good. And next we go on to The Treatment by Sarah Moorhead. Listen to this one. The future of law enforcement has arrived, courtesy of private health contractor Janus Justice. Their groundbreaking offender treatment programme is the most effective method of tackling crime yet. As offenders move through the four-tiered system, their needs are dealt with, each tier more drastic in its methods. Tier 1, low-risk crimes, physical therapy encouraged. Tier 2, trauma and addiction. Tier 3, aversion therapy and moral punishment. Tier 4, Siberia, where all hope is lost. But psychiatrist Grace Gunnison has uncovered a terrible flaw in the system, one that is allowing people to get away with murder. And let me read you the first sentence. Now, there is a prologue, but I think I'm going to read you the first sentence from chapter one, if you'll allow me that. So chapter one, present day. This was not the way Brian Corrigan had expected to die. Great first sentence. Great book. I enjoy Sarah Moorhead's writing. I love dystopian books and I thought this was a great concept to explore and explore it well, Sarah did. It had the characters that you believe in. You're sort of rooting for what you think is good and, and it makes you question that. It keeps you going, keeps you turning the pages. Yes, excellent. Very, very good. And now we come on to my graphic novel recommendation. Who thought? So I think I was watching Criminoli on YouTube some months ago and he was talking about this series of graphic novel books, Spy Family, and it just sounded like something I'd like to read. It's actually manga. And manga is a different sort of graphic novel where you start at the back of the book and read in reverse. I, I don't know why. It just, someone said to me, what are you reading at the moment? And I said, oh, manga. And they were like, oh, well, you're cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm cool. I'm really not, am I? But anyway, so I'm on book five of this. Is there any blurb to read? Oh, yes. OK, Spy Family. Master Spy Twilight is unparalleled when it comes to going undercover on dangerous missions for the betterment of the world. But when he receives the ultimate assignment to get married and have a kid, he may finally be in over his head. Not one to depend on others, Twilight has his work cut out for him, procuring both a wife and a child for his mission to infiltrate an elite private school. What he doesn't know is that the wife he's chosen is an assassin and the child he's adopted is a telepath. I find this series humorous and I like the action in it. I'm intrigued to find out what happens next. Some of it's a bit silly, but I like it and I will keep 
reading them, I think. I think I want the whole series. I found myself looking at a Spy Family t-shirt the other day thinking, oh, I'd like that. So who am I and what's going on? But I don't know. If you are looking for something a bit different, if you're finding reading, maybe you're stuck in a rut or you're finding it hard to settle down, graphic novel is a great way. It's always, you know, when I'm going through stuff, graphic novel is a great way just to help take me out of that. And I think Spy Family is a great series, really enjoyable. So yes, I thoroughly recommend, thoroughly recommend all the books we've discussed today. And let's have a bit of a recap because I've this episode is going to go on for hours and hours. I can only apologise. Anyway, we have had The Trap by Catherine Ryan Howard and Catherine very kindly came on to talk to us about that book. Then we've had the wonderfully titled The Wheel is Spinning, But the Hamster is Dead by Adam Sharp. And Adam very kindly came on to talk to us about that fabulous book. Then we had Starter Villain by John Scalzi, The Treatment by Sarah Moorhead and Spy Family by Tatsuyu Endu. What a selection. Hopefully there's something there that stood out to you. Hopefully all of them have because they're ones I've all enjoyed. But anyway, enough of me. I'm into full-on waffling now. It's not pretty, is it? I just need to go away and have my breakfast. Anyway, you just look after yourselves and I'll talk to you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.